I ask that you would stand with me as we turn back to that passage from John chapter 13 that has been our focus for this evening as we consider this discourse in the upper room of which the Apostle John and his gospel spent the majority or the quite a bit of his gospel expounding. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside His garments, took a towel, and girded Himself. After that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. Then He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to Him, "'Lord, are You washing my feet?' Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If, then, if, the, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Our Father, as we gather here tonight around this word that you have given to us, we ask that the Spirit of God would be poured out fresh upon Your Word, and may we go back in time and in memory as well as in faith to that upper room where Jesus washed His disciples' feet, and may we understand now what was going on then. And we ask that the Spirit would apply the truth to us this evening, that when we leave here, we can be doers of the Word and not hearers only. So fill us with Your Spirit. Make us to be clean vessels through which now You would be pleased to open up Your Word of truth to us and set us free. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. We are in this text in the upper room where the Apostle John spends quite a bit of his time in his gospel. John's gospel is of a different character than the other three. He spends a lot of time on particular events. And 
Sometimes even with extended narratives explaining these events or even coming back to the events. But John is painting for us a narrative that is a microcosm and, and what we have here in uh, John 13 with the washing of his disciples' feet is, is a, a narrative that's nested inside of another narrative, which is nested inside of another. And, and so we have these narrative arcs from Genesis to Revelation. And then in John, we have the connection with those arcs within each other. I was thinking about this and remembered seeing this up on my shelf and thought about how here we are with the narratives and how John loves to paint these things. And this is kind of where we are in the upper room tonight. And as we consider where we are in John's gospel and then where John's gospel is in the context of all of the scriptures, that will help us to understand what's going on here tonight as we think about this setting. In the upper room discourse, of which I'm hoping that from here through the Lord's Day, we can understand the, the story and the, the narrative of what's going on so that the dots will connect with us. And as we move from here into tomorrow evening's discourse, and as we move into the Lord's uh, resurrection day, we have a, a movement even in our own liturgy of, of this narrative that is being played out for us tonight, tomorrow night, and then in the resurrection, which is a part of the whole. John begins his epistle in such a way that he does not want us to miss what he is trying to do. The context is extremely important for us to connect the dots and to make sure we don't miss what John's doing through his entire gospel. John begins in chapter 1 as he echoes the creation account of Genesis 1 when John says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the dark darkness comprehends it not. Here we have, in the very beginning, as John opens up his gospel, he is painting the course of God's creative work and His redemptive history from beginning to end in the analog of what Jesus came to do. He begins in the way so that we would not forget nor even miss it. In the beginning, echoing Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But he's painting the narratives in such a way that he's not merely concerned with original creation, though he wants us to understand the identity and the connection there. But now, symbolically, poetically, he's painting the picture of a new creation. After the pattern of the old. The first thing that God did in creation is He created the heavens and the earth. He brought light into existence. 
Here John informs us that light has come into the darkness to do something new. After John identifies with the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, he next turns to the Exodus theme. The book of Exodus has two main parts. The first part is the deliverance of God's people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. God's people had been under the oppressive and dark forces of Pharaoh in a foreign land. And so God sends forth Moses to deliver his people out of the bondage of Egypt. Likewise, John then takes up these narrative themes as he now presents God sending Jesus to redeem his people out of bondage. And that's why in this discourse in John chapter 8, he gets into this conversation with the Pharisees who said, we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will set us free? And so we have this entire theme being worked out in the Exodus. But the second part of Exodus is after the deliverance, he brings them into the wilderness. And the whole half of the book is now dedicated to the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a pattern of the Garden of Eden. It was a sanctuary where God would meet with man, His image bearer. It was a place where heaven and earth come together, where the two meet. And likewise, John identifies with this tabernacle theme when he says, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This temple theology is so much a part of what the Bible is about. Where God creates a space where heaven and earth come together. And He comes down and He takes His rest in His creation, of which He was well satisfied in. He creates an image of Himself and places Him in the midst and in the foremost part of His creation. And this man that He puts there was to reflect His glory throughout all of the rest of the earth, growing and tilling that garden and cultivating it so that it extends beyond and grows so that the knowledge of the glory of God will go throughout all of the earth as the waters do cover the sea. It is there in the garden sanctuary that God walks with man in the cool of the day and He fellowships with them and delights in Him and the fellowship is mutual. This space where heaven and earth come together, this sanctuary space that God had created from the beginning is the place where God's Shekinah glory is displayed. It's the space where God's Word is revealed. It is the place where He communicates His revelation and will to man. It's the space where man worships and delights in his Creator and and praises Him and, and gives Him thanks. And we have this dialogue of fellowship. The sharing together of mutual love and affection and delight and joy in this sacred space. 
So this temple, this, this resting place of God, this dwelling of His glory, this fellowship and communication with man, this delight, His love and His worship, all of these are themes at that dangerous intersection where heaven and earth come together in this space. And since the fall of man, the dark forces of, of sin and the satanic spirits in the world oppose this sanctuary, this garden temple. John displays Jesus as coming down to the earth from heaven and reestablishing what was lost in that garden temple. Reuniting once again heaven and earth sanctuary is where God and men dwell together in this sweet fellowship. And John is very interested in this temple theme. In fact, the entirety of the gospel is caught up with it. That is the narrative of the story within the story. And John presents his gospel of Jesus with, with pictures and with narratives of temple restoration. At the end of John 1, after he calls Nathanael, and he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And as he begins to communicate there at the end of John 1, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you that hereafter you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This was echoing back to Jacob's ladder at the time where he was at Bethel and, and how he had this vision and this ladder that was anchored upon the earth, ascended up into heaven and angels. This was the connection point of heaven and earth. And here the Son of Man is that. The temple is where the glory of God is seen. And we see in these pictures of the tabernacle when it was dedicated. The glory cloud comes upon it and so thick and bright was it that the, the, the priest could not even enter. We see the same scene again in the dedication of the, of the temple much later. And yet here is Jesus and He would come in His glory and shine forth in the darkness of this world. But what does that glory look like? The whole of John's Gospel is to show us what his glory looks like. John 2 goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. It was a prophetic sign that the temple would be destroyed. And then he says that he will raise up the temple in three days, speaking about the temple of his body. Throughout John's gospel, we see this restoration and this, this what Jesus had come to do is fulfill all of those pictures of this heaven space upon the earth. The Old Testament tabernacle and, and temple were signs along the roadway pointing forward to the temple that was to come. And John reveals Jesus and that divine glory in Jesus is revealed. There were different signs throughout John's gospel of what Jesus did. And Jesus was doing extraordinary things, but not in a blaze of light and nor in a pillar cloud, 
but rather in his person, himself. And he loved the world, and he loved them to the end. And all these temple themes come together in John 13 through 17, this upper room discourse. The divine life is in Christ. And through His divine Spirit, it will now be in His people, His disciples. And He's explaining all of this. So when He gets to John 17, He prays, and I in them, and Thou in me. The glory of God is among the people of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The heaven and earth space is our Lord Jesus Himself, gathered with His people. God's divine presence has come to the earth, and now He secures it once again to be God's resting place. We see in what Jesus comes to do here, we see the themes of the temple resounding once again, and especially in this upper room discourse, themes of love, the themes of joy, of inseparable fellowship with God, of God's glory and His presence and His Word with His people. All of these are emphasized in this upper room discourse. And John opens his discourse here in the beginning of John chapter 13 with Jesus washing His disciples' feet. And what we're actually seeing here is a visual parable. That's really what's going on here, a visible parable. The narration states that in verse 1, that he loved his own and he loved them to the end. That means to the uttermost. In verse 3 it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, he, he had come from God and was going to God. Then he, after supper was finished, he arose. And then in verse 4 it said, He laid aside His garments. And this was the picture now of Jesus laying aside the garments of the glory of heaven to come down to earth and to become a servant. And to serve us in the greatest demonstration of love. And He came to do what the Father sent Him to do. And He took up a towel and he began doing what the lowliest of servants and only the lowliest of servants would be expected to do. He began washing his disciples' feet. Philippians 2, as we read earlier, says it succinctly when it says, He who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It's kind of a challenging phrase. He did not think that the equality with God was something he had to hang on to in glory. 
Verse 7, but he made himself of no reputation. This is the idea of him emptying himself. Not out of his divinity, he emptied himself out of the glories of heaven into the vessel of humanity. A creation lower than the angels. Taking on the form of a bondservant. Coming in the likeness of man and being found as an appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In the room now, as he's going around washing the disciples' feet, we see opposition. The first opposition we see was with his apostle Peter. Peter's explanation or or exclamation is not so surprising to us if we know Peter by now. Lord, you're not washing my feet. This is almost echoing back to just a few chapters back in Matthew where we were not too long ago where he says, Lord, may it never be. And Jesus had to get to him and says, you are not considering the will of God. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus brings his rebuke once again to his unwitting disciple who had good intentions but did not clearly understand what was going on here. And so then Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me. And of course, Peter with his overreaction, okay, wash me all, Lord. (laughs) He has to settle him back down again. There's opposition, even with with Peter, who didn't understand the will of God at the moment, but there was another opposing force in the room, and that was Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him, and Jesus washed his feet. Then afterwards, when he got finished washing the feet, it says in verse 12, he then gathered up his garments again, and then he sat down. The picture is when he was finished with the work he came to do as a servant, he would then put his garments back on. He would then sit down as we see the glory had been given to him and he sits at the right hand of the Father on high. And we have a little narrative, a little parable, if you will, in a visual form of the entirety of what Christ came to do. He laid aside His glory to come to earth to love and defeat our greatest foe. But to regain earth for God's resting place. And when He finished His sacrificial work here as God's suffering servant, He returned to heaven in glory where He sat down and He would send His Holy Spirit to teach us all of these things. That's what's going on in the foot washing. And then just as Jesus gets this new creation started, as He inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth, we are now new creatures in Christ. And the lesson for us is then the same as it was for the first Adam when God says, now go, be fruitful, And multiply. You might remember the story over in John 15. Same context. Just after he washes their feet. You didn't choose me. I chose you. That you may go forth and bear forth fruit. And the Father is glorified with much fruit. 
So now we are to take the work of Christ and we are to extend His work in this love, loving the neighbor, serving His people as humble servants and giving ourselves for His purposes. Not to do our will, but to do the will of Him who sent us. And we will be given the Spirit to enable us to do the work He's called us to do, just as the Father gave the Son the Spirit to accomplish the work that He gave Him to do. And so we have this power that has been given to us in the likeness of our Savior to complete over the centuries the remaining work that we are called to do. And in that work, we see a new heavens and a new earth which has already begun. And we see that we have this work to be fruitful and multiply with the love of God in Christ Jesus. To the glory of God and the glory of Christ empowered by the Spirit. So that in the accomplishment of these things. He bids us to ask anything of the Father in My name and He will give it you that your joy may be full. It will take sufferings and it's through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom. In this life, as Christ, we will continue to suffer. As they persecuted Him, they will persecute us. But, but count it a joy, my brethren, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, because your reward is great in heaven. It will be that which brings your joy to its fullest measure. And so that is what this evening is considering on the time, on the eve before His trial and crucifixion. It's the commissioning of the new heavens and the new earth. As our Savior suffered for us in love, let us be willing to suffer for Him. In April of 1831, Charles Simeon was 71 years old. He had been the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 49 years. He was asked one afternoon by his friend Joseph Gurney how he had surmounted persecution and outlasted all the great prejudice against him in his 49 years of ministry. And he said to Gurney, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his sufferings and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we consider what You have come to do in making all things right that are wrong here in this creation, by renewing it in our Savior, we ask that You would send us forth this evening to be fruit-bearing people that would love 
our neighbor and to serve our Lord to extend his glory throughout all of this earth to the praise of God the Father. And we pray this in his name. Amen.